Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue, and welcome back for another episode of Voices of the Valley. And I am joined, as always, by my good friend and partner, Candace Wilson. Candace? How are you today? Good, and a perfect day for a podcast. You know, you're snowbound, so what better to do than uh, tee up another episode of Voices of the Valley with a great guest, Mike Hemmen, who is the president of Netafim USA. So, Mike, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dennis. appreciate the opportunity to be here. You know, and let's, we were chatting a little bit before we, uh, got started here. So hot off the press. So, you know, we're already giving this particular podcast some context. It's snowing where Candace is in California. And you mentioned last week you were at the irrigation show. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, we've all done our share of trade shows, but I've got to believe irrigation and the rain and snow, notwithstanding in California, water and irrigation got to be a pretty hot topic right now. Yeah, absolutely. The show was pretty impressive. We had a very large turnout. And I think one thing that I would say, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit deeper in the podcast that you would have seen if you'd attended the show is really technology. And what is the future of irrigation going to look like? Not just the delivery of water, but now how do we take the data that we are beginning to collect with precision agriculture? How do we take things that we can pull together in the cloud and make better decision making, bring AI into the equation. A lot of really neat things happening in the business that is absolutely needed as we move forward with some of the challenges that we have here in California. Good. Well, you're right. We are going to get into that. So uh, thanks for the update. And, you know, we'll let you put in a plug. I understand that Netafim got a little recognition at the show. We did. We were awarded the Vanguard Award, which is an industry award that's awarded to companies that demonstrate the spirit of partnership. And specifically for this award, we were awarded it based on a technology that we utilize in dairies called SDIE, and that's subsurface drip irrigation. And the E is actually for effluent. So what we're doing in this case is we're taking the dairy effluent that's generated by the cows and we're utilizing our technology to run it through a series of screens and ultimately blend that with fresh water, which allows you to deliver that then through subsurface drip irrigation. And that can go into forage crops and will allow the farmer to be able to utilize that waste stream in a positive way, reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizer they might need to purchase and deliver it in a way where it can better manage nitrate leaching into groundwater, greenhouse gas emissions, things of that nature. And then ultimately, of course, we grow a forage crop and then that crop is fed back to the cow. So it's a whole 360 degree circular economy, if you will. Well, it sounds like being the president of Netafim USA is a pretty interesting job and Netafim certainly a, a renowned company. Let's talk a little bit about how did you get to the president's chair? I told you I I like to Google people and uh, you've got a pretty uh, good past in the industry. So a little bit of a journey to get to where you are. Yeah. So if you don't mind, I'll go all the way back to the start. My family really is an agricultural family. My father was in the fertilizer business. My brother was also in the fertilizer business. But if you go even further back, my grandparents actually migrated from Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl. And they came out to California, like a lot of people searching for a new beginning. And they worked as sharecroppers. And for me, I knew that I had agriculture in my blood. 
and that I wanted to be in agriculture. But growing up, I had a pretty narrow understanding of what the opportunities were. So I went to Fresno State. I studied plant science and ultimately settled on a career pursuing my pest control advisor's license. And I began my career in the crop protection and seed space. So I spent about 25 years in that space working for companies like Valent and Dow and DuPont and representing their crop protection portfolio and some of the seed brands that people may know, such as Pioneer and Phytogen. So I did that for about 25 years and worked my way up through the company from the sales role into local management and general management and ultimately was leading our specialties business on the sales and marketing side. The merger of Dow and DuPont came together to form Corteva, and I managed the Western U.S. for a few years. And in 2019, I was fortunate to be given an opportunity to lead NetFM's business here in the U.S. So my responsibility here is really building short and long-term strategy and maximizing the financial performance of our U.S. and Canadian business. Well, you, Candace, have something in common. I, I, Candace, if I recall correctly, there's a little bit of uh, the seed business in your background. Indeed. 17 years worth of the seed business. Okay, great. <laughs> well, I'm curious though, Mike, so at the time, what was going on with Netafim and what attracted you to Netafim to make the leap into the irrigation world? Yeah, so for me, if I look at the crop protection and seed space, it's a great business and it's a growing market, but it's a penetrated market. Most every acre has a herbicide or a fungicide or a seed applied to it. So there's not a lot of new open space. If you look at the water space globally, and for sure we see this in California, and you look at specifically efficient irrigation, I think that the opportunity to deliver water in a more efficient manner has never been more important. And I believe that the growth we're going to see in adoption towards more precise ways of irrigation is going to be huge over the next couple of decades. So for me, it's a combination. It's a problem that we need to solve, the water scarcity problem that we have here in this state. And me being a native of California, it's important to me personally to have an opportunity to do that. But I also look and just say from a commercial perspective, it's a very fast growing segment of the industry. And there's a lot of new technology that's coming into it. It's just a very interesting space. You know, it's interesting with the Innovation Center, sometimes when people ask about water and technology, there's this presumption that technology is going to create water. You know, like, what are the products that are going to help with that? And that's just really not the case. And I, you know, I've read a little bit of your writings in terms of how does technology play into the whole water situation? And then if you can take us behind NetFM closed doors a little bit, you know, when you talk privately about, you know, what's your take on the water situation and what you're going to do about it. I mean, if we have to continue to live in an era of scarcity, I, I mean, what's the playing field look like? Let me tackle the second question first, because I think that'll lead us into the technology side. So I think to understand what's going on in California, we have to step all the way back and think about what's going on globally. So I think we know the I'll call it the feed the world story, that by 2050, we have to have 70% more food to meet the growing population. We know that there's less arable land for farming, so we know we have to produce more food on less land. I think one of the critical things that we're living with here in California, as well as globally, is water availability. And we know that globally, there will be 25% less water available. It's probably even worse than that here in the state of California. So not only do we need to make more food on less land, but we've got to do it with less water. And take it one step further and say if that isn't already difficult enough, we know that consumers are demanding that their food is grown in a more sustainable way with a reduced environmental footprint. So 
pretty challenging situation in and of itself. But if you think about the state of California and the water challenges that we have, I, I think there's a couple things. One, of course, is the ongoing drought. And so we know that that's led to reduced water supplies. That's cyclical. We've been through this at different times over the course of history, and we'll be through it again. And drought is a cycle. But I think another challenge that we have, of course, is just the increasing demand for water from urban areas as well. And that's put a lot of pressure on farmers to use less water, and it's making it more difficult for them to access the water that they need. So from a California perspective, I think the other thing that's important is to understand where do the farmers get the water? And I think those of us in the state obviously know that we receive very little annual rainfall and virtually none during many of the key growing seasons for some crops. So we basically rely almost exclusively on irrigation water. So where's that come from and how's it delivered? So you have to think back to basically two different types of water, surface water and groundwater. So you think about surface water, we know that it's typically captured in reservoirs or other storage facilities. And then it's delivered to farmers through a network of aqueducts, pipelines, canals all through the state. And that amount of water that's available, of course, is highly dependent upon snow accumulation. So Candace, it's great that uh, we're starting off the year in a good spot this year and rainfall. And the other complex thing that's really become much more complex over the last couple of decades is all this water is managed by state and federal agencies, low and local water districts, and they're responsible for distributing this water to the farmers, to the cities, to the other users of water. In drought years, of course, we know that farmers get lower water allocations based on the water rights and the availability of water that they have. And that's a pretty complex process in and of itself, could be impacted by weather, endangered species. So I think it's safe to say it's very complex and it's resulted in a shortage of water for agriculture which leads to more dependence on groundwater. So what happens now? So groundwater, we know it's always been used in California to some extent for ag, but over the last decade, farmers have really had to rely a lot more on groundwater to supplement the shortage of surface water that's available. So that water, of course, is pumped from underground aquifers and applied through all kinds of different irrigation techniques. And some of those, of course, are more efficient than others with drip being the most efficient. And then we all know, of course, over pumping these aquifers can lead to subsidence where the ground surface literally sinks or settles because we're, un we're withdrawing so much underground water. It happens naturally over time, but I think we've really seen an acceleration as we become more reliant on groundwater. So uh, those are some of the challenges for sure that we are living with in this state in the world that we live in today in ag. Such a great summary of all of that and so complicated, just like you said. I'm curious, can you highlight for us what is Netafim's role and what are you offering? What solutions are you offering to growers just, you know, as they face all of those challenges you just articulated so perfectly? Yeah, so I think it depends on the space, but in agriculture, our core technology has been drip irrigation. And so we our tagline is grow more with less. So really what we're doing is we're producing products and equipment that allow growers to more effectively and efficiently irrigate their crop by utilizing drip irrigation. And that can yield to savings of water. But the other thing it can do is yield to yield and quality benefits. So if you think about drip irrigation and you think about the way that it is put underground in a subsurface type of situation or above ground, effectively what you're doing is you're taking a very small amount of water and delivering it exactly where the plant needs it. It's almost like an IV. 
So you can think about the water part of it, but now think about delivering other things through there as well, whether that's fertilizer, crop protection materials and things of that nature can be delivered in a more precise way. So I'd say that's the core, but the other part is knowledge. And I think one thing that NetFM is really known for, and I think an area that we excel in is agronomy. We have a full agronomy team across the whole United States, and we spend a lot of time and effort working with our dealers, working with growers and helping them understand how to utilize that technology, because it's a challenge when you convert from flood to drip and have to understand how to run an irrigation cycle, how to plan an irrigation cycle, timing, duration, et cetera. So that agronomy piece is a critical part of what we do as well. I want to pick up on that a little bit. You know, one of our 2023 priorities is going to be this whole biological space and inputs. And, you know, if it's a pie chart in the wonderful world of IPM, you know, I think it's fair to say we're heading towards a world of less chemistry, more biology. And so in terms of delivery systems, I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily made that connection because I was always more of a marketing guy when I was in the deal. But it, so it sounds like your crop protection background comes in awfully handy in the world we're heading towards. Yeah, for sure. I'll give you a quick example. We've been working for a couple of years now in a partnership with Bayer. And Bayer is introducing a new nematicide to the almond market and great product. But nematicides, if you think about what they do and how they're utilized, they're targeting nematodes that happen to be in the soil. So it's all about how that product is delivered to the soil. Drip irrigation is a natural fit. And we've worked very closely with them to understand the dynamics of water and soil and how that product moves in the soil, how we can work together. We're helping their team to better understand some of the basics of irrigation. They're helping us to better understand some of the basics of crop protection. It's a very symbiotic relationship and it's been a lot of fun. It's been great to provide some expertise and have our team focus on the agronomy side of the equation in addition to just the hydraulics that we would typically think about in designing an irrigation system. Do you also have crop experts or how do you guys prior, you know, in terms of agronomy and, you know, the different technologies that you have happening right now, do you, how do you prioritize crop yes. locations? I would say if you start at the top, in our global headquarters, we have a full global agronomy team. And so they are looking very deeply at the major crops that are either currently being irrigated with drip irrigation or have an opportunity to be irrigated with drip irrigation. Now, of course, that's a global view. It's not a local view. So we get some base knowledge from there. And then we really refine that more deeply here within the U.S. and within our agronomy team. So if you think about California, obviously a lot of focus on permanent crops, on almonds, pistachios, a lot of work in vegetables, a lot of work in tomatoes, a lot of work that's ongoing in alfalfa, of all things, because of water scarcity issues. We're going to have to do something different in alfalfa rather than flood irrigated. So where's the crop expertise? It really is dependent upon the region and the person that's assigned to that region. So for instance, if you think about the Central Valley of California, that's heavily dominated by almonds, our agronomy leader that leads our agronomy team in the Western U.S. also happens to be a farmer. And he and his family have farmed for generations. They have almonds. They have grapes. They understand not just irrigation, but they understand the whole aspect of how to farm, whether that be cultural practices, whether that be things around fertility and crop protection, not just the irrigation side. And those are the type of people that we really look for that have that real life, hands-on experience and deep background. You know, so picking up on that, and so logically in the world we live in, everybody's automatically going to convert from flood 
to drip yes or no because <laughs> because the answer is uh well I'll, I'll let you answer to the question it, it still doesn't happen automatically does it it doesn't i think more growers are moving to drip irrigation especially with water scarcity and even in cases where they understand and can see the benefit of yielding quality by adopting drip but there's still many barriers that are going to prevent a farmer from naturally jumping right into drip irrigation so i think probably the biggest one is it's a pretty high upfront cost. So if you think about somebody that may be doing furrow irrigation today, very little cost. I mean, they they have to get that water out of the canal or out of the ground, and then they have to deliver it into a furrow, but that's pretty low technology, not a lot of cost. And most of that is sunk cost and it's depreciated pipe and things that have been on the farm for a long time. If you think about drip irrigation, you've got to do a lot of capital investment for that installation. So that could be a barrier for sure. Another is probably technology. And if you think about, again, what I referenced before, switching from flood to drip or even sprinklers to drip, the systems can be complex. It does require some specialized knowledge and skills to install it, to maintain it, and to run it. So I think that that would be another barrier. I think another one is resistance to change. There are a lot of people that have always done things one way. Their dad did it, their grandfather did it. And sometimes if you look at these new technologies, and changes in the irrigation space, that could be a daunting task for many people as well. So I think for us in the industry, there's a couple things that we need to do. One is we need to continue to innovate and do everything we can to work on the cost side of the equation, but there's only so far we can go on that. I think the other part is looking at the cost benefit analysis and you look at the return on the investment that you get over time. I think when we have less water and water becomes more and more expensive, I think that ROI becomes much more clear. And I think one thing we for sure have to do is make sure that we are providing adequate training, adequate support, and ongoing expertise to people that are adopting drip irrigation and helping them better understand how to utilize it. I have a question about future technologies and stuff. We talked about product offerings and drip irrigation, and you also talked about your partnership with Bayer. What other partnerships or technologies are going to, you know, if you if you think of water management in the next 10 years, what are the different technologies that are going to need to come together to really make the whole system efficient? So I think precision agriculture is a word we toss around a lot. And I think most people, when they think about precision agriculture, their mind doesn't automatically go to irrigation. It goes to satellite imagery, it goes to drones, it goes to variable rate application technologies. But if you think about where that can influence the irrigation market, I think that's where there's going to be a lot of opportunity in the future. There's a lot of startups in the digital space, and there's been a huge focus on utilizing data and site-specific information to improve farming practices. And those things will allow real-time decision-making based on artificial intelligence. So think about for a minute, if you've got some base level of data that might be a model, and now you take that model and you improve that model with site-specific information from a soil moisture sensor, from a drone that's flying over the field, from satellite imagery, maybe it's even things around the cost of power when you turn on a well. What's the cost at peak or off-peak? Now, if you take all those things and you analyze them, you can pretty quickly come up with, okay, this is the best time to irrigate based on all these different factors. This is what the crop needs. This is how the irrigation system needs to be used to deliver that water at the right time for the right duration, et cetera. It can be pretty daunting and pretty complex to do that on your own or on a spreadsheet. A lot of the models that are happening today and a lot of the technology that we're working on 
is giving that AI side of it. So not just collecting that data in the field, but then taking that data, moving it to the cloud, running algorithms on that data and coming up with a recommendation to a farmer that says, based on all these different variables that are out here, we would recommend you do this thing. And it's generally going to be different than what they would do otherwise. And a lot of irrigation today is really pretty, not not quite as complex as maybe what you might think it would be with the data that's available to us today. There are so many people talking about water management and talking about data collection and then, you know, trying to apply it. What's going to separate the winners and, and losers? I think it's a couple of things. One is you've got to be willing to do things differently than you've done them in the past. And I think that's challenging sometimes. And sometimes that leads us to spaces where we're uncomfortable because dad didn't do it that way or granddad didn't do it that way. And I think taking the data that's available to us and utilizing that to make better decisions is really important. I'll give you just a real quick conversation I had with somebody in the crop protection space the other day. They were comparing and contrasting their new PCAs. And they spoke about some of the seasoned PCAs and they have a tool where they're trying to take all the information that they're getting in the field and input it into the tool. So whether that be plant mapping data, fertility data from soil samples, from foliar samples, et cetera. And what they were saying to me is a lot of the seasoned veterans have put a little bit of pushback out in putting the data up into the system because they felt like, hey, I know how to do it. I learned from this guy who'd done it forever. And I have this great experience that helps me to serve the needs of my farmers. They contrasted that with the young PCAs and the young PCAs who don't really know much to get started other than what they learned in a book or maybe some general experience that they got as an intern are adopting this technology with open arms and they're grabbing every bit of data that they can because it's helping them make better decisions. So what this person told me is if they look at the curve of how quickly these PCAs are now coming up to speed, if you will, and becoming experts, the newer generation who's not afraid to take that data and learn from it they are becoming much more adept, much more quickly than those in the past. So I think that's certainly something that we have to do is we've got to adapt and embrace that technology that's available to us today. I was intrigued uh, going back to my uh, Googling. You know, you talked about a recent visit to Silicon Valley and we were talking and we'd had a similar conversation with one of our previous guests that, you know, ag tech's obviously been around a while, you know, in terms of a phrase and, and obviously technology and innovation are not new to agriculture, but this particular guest made the point that really the Silicon Valley and agriculture still haven't really fully connected. Though it sounds like, you know, there's a lot more integration in uh, in your business than, I mean, folks might've first su- suspected, but what's your take on that comment? Because I know Candace talked a little bit about the future, but is the issue the technology or the adoption or both? I think it's both. And I think the other is making it simple enough so that somebody knows what to do with the data. What I hear from farmers all the time is I get these just feeds of data and it's from all different types of data, all different types of analysis. What do I do with it? How do I make a better decision than what I might have made in the past? I I think we're going to see a shift in the definition of a farmer. Data and technology have already allowed for more precise measurement and decision-making. And it's not going to look in the future, like just driving through fields and scouting each and every corner of the field to determine what's happening, we're going to rely on imagery. We're going to rely on site-specific information to help us focus our efforts. That's going to lead to yield and quality. I call it hunting where the ducks are. And I think about as an intern 26, 27 years ago, when I started, I went out with a sweep net 
And I swept fields and I wrote down on a piece of paper what the insect counts were, where there were weeds, et cetera. I supplied that back to people and then somebody analyzed that information. Today, we have technology that maybe won't give you that granular level of detail, but it can at least point you in the right direction. So instead of randomly going through fields, it would say, check this field first because we saw something on satellite imagery and then follow up on this field. Those are things that certainly will do. One thing that vividly sticks in my mind when I worked for Pioneer, I remember being out in the field and we went to go find a grower because we wanted to talk to him about some of the digital technology that the company had at the time. And I remember walking in the field and guys driving down the furrows in a tractor and he throttles the tractor down, hops off real quick. And we were standing in the middle of the field with an iPad. And I thought, how crazy is this compared to when I first got started in this industry? We start pulling up satellite imagery. And we start looking at that imagery and we found a spot where there was crop stress. And we said to the farmer, look at this, look at what we what we saw. And if we would have known this three months ago, we would have increased yield because we would have done something different about this imagery that we had. But the thing that really hit me at that time is the farmer goes, I know. So what do you mean I know? He goes, oh, that's that area of the field where we've got a sand streak and we always have this irrigation problem there. So that goes back to taking the, all these data things that we're generating and taking that all the way back to personal experience. What's the farmer know about their ground? What's the farmer know about the past? I mean, we only get so many cycles to do this thing, and there's still going to be a big human touch as we go forward. We talk about that a lot, Dennis, in terms of robotics. It's not machines replacing humans. It's the technologies complementing each other and coming together. Absolutely. One of the things I wanted to do is also ask you, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about Netafim in a manner that we're familiar with, you know, drip, irrigation, that type of thing. But Netafim, uh, you have a few other businesses you pay attention to, whether it's mining, greenhouses, that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think there's several different segments, of course, that we operate in. So agriculture is our largest segment, but we're also heavily involved in landscape irrigation. And that could be residential or that could be commercial. And so again, going back to the trends in the irrigation space, I think it feels like every week we see something somewhere where there's been some new restriction on residential watering. Maybe it's only water on odd days. Maybe it's only water once a week or twice a week. We are also seeing some states that are completely banning the ability to plant a lawn. So if you don't have turf that's used for some sort of sports event, they're banning turf. So there's going to be a change in the way that we landscape our yards. There's going to be a change in the way that we utilize water. I think about walking down the street and seeing even my own house where I may have pop-up sprinklers in my front yard. And if you look at the sidewalk and you look at how much water is on the sidewalk versus water that's on the lawn, that's wasted water. It could have been used, utilized more efficiently. So that's a large growing part of our business. We also are involved in the wastewater segment. So delivering wastewater through a, instead of a leach field, like you would have in a typical septic system, we have drip irrigation technology that will allow you to replace that leach field. That's another segment of our business. Mining is another segment of our business. They utilize the drip line to deliver water and chemicals through a heap of ore and earth, and it helps to recover the precious metals at the bottom of the pile. So that's another important part. But I think one of the areas for sure that's been a lot of fun recently is protected agriculture. And a couple of years ago, we purchased a greenhouse company in Holland, and we're now building turnkey greenhouses from the ground up that take our technology for irrigation on the inside, but then also build a purpose-built greenhouse 
that can be utilized to grow different crops anywhere in the world. So if you think about some of the things that are happening as consumers and the demand for having food close to us, having different types of boutique food, microgreens, small tomatoes, things like that, it's a booming segment. It's growing like crazy. And that's a really fast growing area of our business as well. So you guys are supplying the greenhouses globally to the growers and it has all of the irrigation technology and everything included in that package. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's really, it's a different customer. It's not what we would call a typical farmer. Typically this is private equity funds and they're looking at consumer research, right? And we look and say, I want to know who grew it. I want to know how they grew it. I want to know where they grew it. I want to face, I want to say it was grown sustainably. This has been a big trend that we saw, I think, especially over the course of the pandemic. And it's led to a lot of opportunities in that space. What other regions in the world? So for sure, in in the US, you hear that a lot. Are there other countries or parts of the world where this trend is just as significant? Yeah, the furthest ahead of anybody is in the Netherlands. And this is just the way of life in the Netherlands. If you look at the amount of land that they have and natural resources, they have been able to really concentrate the production in a very small footprint and have extremely high yields because of the way that they produce the food in the greenhouses. And they've become a net exporter of fruits and vegetables. Amazing. And, you know, in in many ways, the weather there also left them, you know, the weather is a significant influence on it, not just this need for local, but they've been able to generate an entire economy, it sounds like. Thinking about water uh, throughout the world, where are the other, uh, you know, we're in California, so we just presume, you know, only bad things happen to us, you know, weather extremes and droughts. But there are a lot of other spots throughout the planet where I think folks would be surprised to hear uh, water is a challenge and uh, even impacts, you know, our production relationships like Chile and those sorts of things. Where are the hot spots where folks are thinking about the same thing as we are in California, you know, more extremes, how do you get more storage online, et cetera, et cetera? I think it's more common than maybe what we think. And I'll go all the way back to why was our company founded? I mean, the company was founded in 1965 in the desert of Israel. So go all the way back then and say, why? Well, there was a farming community, Kibbutz Hatsarim, where the company started. And they were trying to grow food in an environment where every single drop of water counted. It's not new. It's something that other people have grappled with, other countries have grappled with for many, many, many years. And one of the challenges that we've seen with adoption of drip irrigation is in the past, farmers have looked and said, well, why would I want to go put a big capital investment in place? Water's free or water's inexpensive. I've got plenty of water. I don't want to go spend this money to put this capital investment in. Well, we're not in a situation where water is low cost or water is free. We're in a situation that Israel faced in 1965, and we're rapidly running into significant challenges. And I think one area we didn't talk about earlier, but I think is important is in California specifically is the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. So if you think about SIGMA and you think about some of the challenges that we talked about earlier around surface water and groundwater, there's now a law that's being phased in in California that will be focused on improving management of groundwater. So we're going to have local agencies that have to develop and implement plans to manage their groundwater resources more sustainably. And one of the things that people talk about is not just more efficiently utilizing water, but following land. And so if we think about what does that mean for a state like California and why would people be thinking about that? 
I think it's really important with Sigma that we balance science along with the preservation of our farming community here in California. So if I think about the science side, some of the initial work that's been underway to measure groundwater withdrawals is not done by actual measurements at the field level in the irrigation, it's satellite imagery. And it's good technology and it can work in theory, but it's still dependent on an algorithm that would calculate water use based on what it's measuring. Unfortunately, part of that algorithm is based on evapotranspiration research, but that research was done decades ago before we had such large penetration of drip irrigation. So the calculations that were developed at that time, they don't differentiate between different types of irrigation. And we know drip irrigation is more efficient, doesn't utilize the same amount of water as other technologies. So I think we really need to refine those algorithms. And I think a shift to drip irrigation could lead to less land being fallowed. Think about all the alfalfa that we have in California and the fact that it's flood irrigated. If we were to shift that to subsurface drip irrigation, there'd be huge water savings. And I think that the other piece about this, about the balance and the preservation of our farming community in California is food insecurity. And I think food insecurity in the U.S. is an emerging problem that we will deal with in our lifetime. I think people are disconnected from the farm more than they've ever been. And people don't really realize all the time that we can't exist without farmers. We have land that we're idling that's directly impacting our food supply. If you look at the trends over the last decade, we've traditionally been a net exporter of fruits and vegetables. The U.S. over the last decade has become a net importer. I think we all need to be thinking about that and doing everything we can to be helping farming in California and the U.S., not making it more difficult. Well, you know, you've teed up one of Candace and my favorite topic. We tend to come at it from a, a slightly different angle from the standpoint that, you know, what the three of us share in common, we think we do pretty good stuff and uh, grow things that are for healthy for people. Yet in some fashion or another, it seems like we play defense more than we play offense which is kind of startling when you think of the caliber of people involved in the industry, the marketing firepower that individual companies have. And so how do we get our arms around that? And then when you throw in food insecurity, does Netafim give any thought to uh, how do we help tell that story? We do. We have a large focus on sustainability and we're present at many different areas that may not be focused significantly on farming. So we had our chief sustainability officer at the COP conference here uh, last couple of weeks. So that's been great from a global perspective and helping people to better understand our situation in agriculture and specifically in irrigation. But I think it goes back to every single one of us personally. We're all busy. There's a hundred or a thousand things on our plate every day that we have to tend to. And I think we have to just make time to be proactive. We have to make time to have conversations like this. We need to make sure that we're getting these facts and figures and perspectives out to the general public because many people today don't have direct relatives to say, oh, my Uncle Bob's a farmer or my Uncle Bob works on a farm. We're getting so disconnected from the farm. If we don't let our voice rise above all the other chatter and talk to people, not just in the farming community, but people that rely on the farming community, then we're going to continue to have challenge. I think that's something I take to heart. And it's obviously not defined in my job description, but I make it a part of my job description. I think that's something we should all do as leaders in agriculture. It's so true. I, you said that so nicely. In a similar vein, how does Netafim engage with the lawmakers or the regulatory environment? Those that are, you know, that's a big chunk of what impacts the way the growers operate and the prioritization of their efforts. 
Yeah, so I think uh, there's a big focus on advocacy. And I mean, there are formal positions that we have that focus on advocacy, but I think that a lot of this is grassroots. So we had this conversation last week in the board meeting at the Irrigation Association, and we were talking about the upcoming farm bill. And we were talking about what are the things that we need to be doing to get more focus on efficient irrigation in the farm bill. A lot of that's education, helping people better understand what that means and how programs like Equip can help farmers adopt more efficient irrigation technology. But the thing that was brought up during that is that's only part of the equation. So much of this is grassroots. So much of this is local. I talked earlier about Sigma. And if you look at all of the different local agencies for each groundwater district, they're all currently, while they're talking, a lot of them are developing their plans independently. So I think all of us just have to get very, very involved in the grassroots. And that's got to supplement the work that we're doing on the Hill, the work that we're doing in Sacramento. It's really a team effort that has to be done at all different levels in order to make sure that we've got the right data that's being delivered to the policymakers. Well, you know, as we draw to a close, I was uh, struck by, you know, your Thanksgiving message, the things you were thankful for. And I want you to talk about this because I think it's important. You know, the top two were the people you work with and having a purpose. And, you know, if I was getting started on a career or just even thinking about a career, the opportunity to work for a company that thinks like that, that strikes me as a good thing. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. And I think that's a big part of our culture here at NetFM. I think many people saw during the course of the pandemic that all of us, or many of us, let's say, stepped back and thought about not the fact that we need to have a career to generate money to pay the bills, but how are we generating that money? And is that something that we can wrap our heart around? Is that something that we can say, I'm proud to go to work every day and do that? I mean, it's the difference between what we do in agriculture, which is an essential industry that every single person on this planet needs or selling junk bonds. You probably make a lot of money selling junk bonds, but you know, what is the real purpose of doing that and how do you connect with that? So for us, fortunately, that's a pretty easy part of the equation because we're doing some great things. And I think what I think about a lot and what our leadership thinks about a lot, those of us that are on the front lines and in agriculture understand that, but maybe not all of our employees in the plants that are working in the manufacturing facilities. So it's a big focus of ours to help them to understand what we do and the difference that they're all making. When you sit down at Thanksgiving and you look at everything on the table and think, wow, we actually had a part of making this happen. I think that's one piece. And I think the other part that, again, I'm thankful for is the people. And part of, maybe I don't know if it was in this article but or another article I might have contributed to, but one thing I always think about is this piece of talking about people giving 110%. So you can get people to give 100% by buying their time. That's what a job is called. You pay somebody a wage and they do the job. To give 110%, that last 10% or 20% or whatever number you want to throw out there, it's voluntary. You don't have to give it. But if you're committed and you feel like you're heading in the right direction and you're helping make the world a better place or you like the work environment or you're a part of the team, that's how you're going to get that extra 10%. I'm just so grateful that our team is as committed as they are to the success of the company, to what they're doing to make the world a better place. And to me, I'm very grateful for that. And I think we're in a pretty unique situation there. Dennis, this one has to air right before Christmas. Listen to that feel-good message. Well, it will be right before Christmas. And it's some uh, food for thought to uh, think about uh, the New Year's and some uh, resolutions. And so 
Mike, we really appreciate your time. And I'm looking at Candace uh, while we're Zooming doing the audio on this. And I think it's fair to say we really enjoyed the conversation and we appreciate your visiting with us and, and your insights. And, you know, ag tech is a global game. So thanks for your view of the world, uh, you know, because Netafim obviously is a global player. So I think that's terrific to be able to benefit from uh, your working knowledge of all that and the purpose and people conversation. So we, we're grateful for that. Candace, any final thoughts? And I'm going to give Mike the last word. You know, my, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, as we get off the air, I said, gee, I wish I had asked you. I wish I had said any, uh, gee, I wish I said from your standpoint or anything we missed. I don't think so. Uh, I'll build on one thing you just said, though, about the Christmas side of the equation or right before the holidays airing it. So I will walk out the door and head down the street to an elementary school. And one of the things that we've done with our employees for a long time is we take a whole grade at one of these local elementary schools that's a partner of ours that's right down the street in our local community. And it happens to be in an area where it's pretty low income. And a lot of these kids don't get a Christmas at home. So every one of our employees, or not everyone, but many of our employees have selected a child and we bought gifts. And so we'll go this afternoon and provide those gifts and stand on stage and do that. It makes it a little bit fun. And for me personally, I think those kind of things help me get through the challenging side because we have lots of things that are challenges. We can focus and dwell on the challenges or we can think about the things that we should be thankful for and fortunate for. And I think in agriculture, while we have challenges, we have a lot more to be thankful for than we do to worry about. I think those are terrific words. You know, what the heck, Candace, we should take a walk on the wild side. I think this one's going to be right before Christmas. So we'll wish all our listeners a Merry Christmas. And Mike, we'll wish you the same thing to you and your family and our friends at Netafim. And we have more than a few. So we're grateful to, uh, for the opportunity to work with Netafim. You're one of the center sponsors. So we like you guys. <laughs> well, we're proud to be a part. And I thank you for the opportunity today. Terrific. All right. Merry Christmas. And Candace, let's do it again next week. Absolutely. Merry Christmas, Mike. Thank you for everything. All right, everyone. We will be back uh, on or about the new year with another episode of Voices of the Valley. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in ag technology, food safety, and plant science, you can visit reedleycollege.edu.